Bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. It's so easy to get started with Linode. Servers start at just five bucks a month for your big ideas. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Choose your flavor of Linux that works for you. Then pick a location that's right for you. London, Tokyo, Dallas, and many other places in the world. They've got you covered. Go from having that amazing shower idea to a hosted website in just minutes. Start small, expand as your idea blossoms into a huge hit. And we trust Linode because they keep it fast. They keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Welcome to GoTime, a podcast featuring a diverse panel and special guests discussing cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, oh, and also Go. We record live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, New Pacific. Join the community that's live with us in real time during the show in the GoTime FM channel and go for Slack. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Listen live at changelaw.com slash live or subscribe at changelaw.com slash GoTime. And now on to the show. Hello and welcome to this episode of GoTime. I am uh, one of your hosts, Johnny Borsico, and joining me today are uh, my uh, regulars, including Mr. John Calhoun. Hey. Say hello, John. <laughs> and uh, coming back in full force, we got Carmen Endo. Hey, it's good to be back. Missed you all. Nice. Good to have you back. And making his second appearance in what, like a, less than a month or something, uh, is Stevenson Jump. Yeah. How's it going, man? Hey, thank you for having me. Awesome, awesome. Today is is a is a kind of a different show uh, in the sense that we're here to talk about junior developers, specifically hiring and nurturing junior talent. How do you how do you do that on your teams? Um, how do you structure your your environment? How do you structure your organization to to uh, um, to allow for junior developers to to succeed in that environment? Why hire junior developers? What do they bring to the team? Uh, um, what, how how do you how do you make the experience for both your organization, your team, and them um, a successful one? One that is productive, one that is going to benefit the both of you. So today is. We have a few things. We have a few things to talk about. So I'm gonna start out by basically saying, like, opening the floor up. Basically saying, why is it that seemingly, in my eyes, every employer out there these days is hiring senior talent only? Like, literally, every post I see, right? It's like, okay, looking for you know, like a, a long list of of of, of skills and, and experiences and, and of technologies and buzzwords and and I mean, sometimes I look at this, and I'm like. Who, who even experience like can actually meet all of these qualifications? It's, it's just it's just getting kind of silly, kind of ridiculous. I'm not sure if who's putting together these these. Uh, um, leave it to me to start with a rant, right? I'm not sure who's putting together these uh, um, um, job descriptions, but I mean the list keeps getting longer and longer and longer. That aside, if you are a junior developer and you're looking at that list, I mean that is intimidating. I mean, like, why? I mean, anybody on this panel, please enlighten me and tell me why, what is going on out there? I think most companies have the expectation that if they only hire senior talent, then those people will be able to hit the ground running quicker. They'll be able to contribute 
sooner and they'll have less um, training to apply to that person to get them up to the speed that they want to. And the, the kind of the kind of thing is, or the, the not so secret secret is that as an industry, we're pretty bad at training people and teaching people how to do things. So we just hope that we can hire senior people and they'll already come with all the pre-training applied from somewhere else and that we can just benefit from somebody else's work or from some other company's uh, previous efforts in training that person up. Yeah. And to piggyback on Stevenson's comment, I also feel like many companies, not only are, are they bad at training, but they do not have performance and promotion incentivized to train, right? So if you are an engineer, you need to show technical impact. And that does not include, and that's unfortunate, uh, growing new talent, right? That sort of seems to be in the purview of a hiring manager or a recruiter, right? Getting them there. But once they're there in a company of me, and this could, these are companies both large and small, there isn't anything that's formalized in terms of um, incentivizing the people that are already there to, to grow the new talent and, and, and acknowledge that and promote that. So I think that's also kind of adding to this problem that we have as an industry in terms of, you know, growing the workforce and growing our, our set of gophers. <laughs> I suspect there's also like a volatility aspect where you assume that if you hire three senior engineers that, yes, it's going to cost more, but you kind of have like a known they should be able to like perform at these levels and like the project should get done on time. Whereas like junior developers, it's kind of a, it's kind of a guessing game where you're thinking if they end up being a great developer and they pick up things really quickly, then maybe they're performing at a really high level. But if they don't, you know, it could cost you some senior developer time to, to train them and you don't know exactly what that's going to be. So it makes estimating time very, very hard, which I think, I don't think that's impossible to get around, but I just think people view it that way is, is like, I just need to, you know, for this quarter, we have to get these things done. I can't afford to, you know, have training on the schedule. Yeah, you mentioned quarters, and that's also something that we are horrible at, right? We just have no patience, and we do have no eye for the long game. We, we just work in quarters, and we work in sprints, and we work in semesters. We maybe are long enough to work in a year, but then projects get delayed, and we didn't estimate right. And so all of this attributes to sort of the short game instead of the long game. So recently, at least in my in my uh, last job, you know, which I spent like three years, uh, um, three years at, and I worked with. There were some junior developers on my team. I, I, I work with the, these talented individuals um, quite a bit, and I also had senior developers on my team. So the the literally, I could not like from day to day, right? The the other than the occasional sort of pairing and and, and sort of uh, the occasional discussion. On, on sort of design, things that really come with experience. You know, once the juniors got going, I mean, really, like I couldn't see a difference in terms of the code commits or when I did PRs. Like I, there was nothing ever, anything in my mind that says, oh, yeah, I'm reviewing a junior developer's code, right? Like the, it's, I mean, that whole notion that somehow they're not going to be adding value to the team, that's that's patently false. I mean, the, the like I'm not sure, not sure it, it, this is so... I think the onus is on us, right? The, the people who who do the hiring, right? The people, the hiring managers. Um, I'm not necessarily talking about the, the recruiters and whatnot because a lot of times these folks don't really know what they're uh, um, sort of recruiting for in terms of technology, in terms of what to look for in, in skill and skill set. Uh, um, it's not their fault. I mean, that's not that's not their job. It, their job is not to know in and out the, the ins and outs of the technology. So it's our job as the hiring sort of managers, the people who are interviewing, the people who are sort of trying to decide whether this uh, this 
person is going to be a good addition to the team or not to sort of basically be real with ourselves and say, hey, like, I know that adding a, a one junior developer to this team of five, right, is not going to have that much of an impact on timelines or something like that, right? right? So play, like Carmen's saying, play the long game, right? So this develop, developer is going to become a lot more productive if they grow alongside of other developers, right, over the next six months, eight months, you know, to a year, right? So so playing that long game. So the the it's almost like we don't see the value right so so let me ask it more you know more bluntly why hire junior developers on your team what's the value i love the the concept of zen mind beginner mind um and this is whether you are a junior developer or you're just new to a company you have this um, ability to sort of see well why is it this way and why isn't that documented and wait how does this work again and and you sort of forget because you have what we call institutional blindness, right? You've acclimated to the point where you can't see where your blind spots are anymore. Um, and so having them fresh, um, and this is, you know, this also works for somebody who's senior, but it's particularly great for a junior developer because that really tests your onboarding materials and how well you can scale and these processes and the ability to communicate. So it sort of really is like a good um, engineering for all of the other things and how well your company, your dev team, your processes, your bureaucracy work all together. And and devs really, if they, um, if you provide a culture of asking, um, that really can help so much. And companies aren't won or lost on the brilliance of the tech stack or even the brilliance of the developers. They're won or lost in communication. Right, they're won or lost in all the, the ability to get things done and work cross-functionally, and so these are the things that devs really can new new developers, junior developers really can bring to the surface and help uh, improve because they are the ones designing. We we design these kind of things for them. So I don't know if this is going to come off right, but another reason to hire junior engineers is because um, for the most part they are this kind of kind of clean slate of kind of kind of an engineer developer. So if as a company you're trying to build a certain positive culture and you're trying to you're trying to do certain things, I think having people that aren't already jaded by the industry and things like that can help you kind of foster that culture that you're looking to build and and grow those people into the type of senior engineers that you're hoping out of the company. But that definitely requires that that long vision for the company. You can't be measuring things in quarters like Carmen has said, but you have to look at things in the longer term. What can we do with these engineers in two or three years and how can we make sure that when these engineers become senior, we know from the top down we have the type of culture that will be very kind of open and welcoming to to other people and in a way that you, you really see the company vision going. And I think too often companies don't really look at it in that way. I think it's just to add one more point. I think cost is a big part of it too. If if you have a team that can take junior developers and get them up to speed and get them performing, even if they only get to 80% of a senior developer's performance or something, you know, and they still need some help, they're more than likely way, way cheaper than a senior developer. And that won't always be true. I'm not saying you should like exploit them or anything, but I think that's part of being a junior developer is that you're learning on the job and you're going to be a little bit cheaper for the company. So I think the companies that do it right are going to be the ones that can ship things for a lot less money. And then not only that, but like you're saying, they'll have senior developers that are great for the company in the long run anyway. So it like helps them in multiple different ways, but that requires them to think long-term. So that's a very interesting point. As a hiring manager, um, cost has never actually come up with regards to how we pick 
our, our candidates. You have uh, you have an open headcount, and the headcount gives you a salary range. And sure, you could come under that salary range, but nobody's gonna be nobody's gonna be congratulating you for coming under budget or anything like that. From my experience, at least, and um, I've never had a I've never been in a situation where where costs really factored in, and it, it was actually the opposite for us, where because we had the open headcount. We would rather go senior because a headcount is a headcount, regardless if you hired a junior or not. And there was no such kind of dichotomy where, or situation where we could say, hey, we'll get two juniors for the price of a, a senior because the all-in cost is always kind of more than purely the salary. Um, so it's, it was always interesting to me because before I became an engineering manager, I always thought that that was kind of a trade-off that can be made where you could have maybe, maybe lower cost salary-wise individuals that can maybe be a kind of multiplying factor. But from an organizational perspective, it seems like the organizations I've been at least never kind of factored cost in when, when doing that kind of hiring activity. What, um, what size were the companies you've been at? Are they all fairly large? Um, so my previous place was uh, enterprise, very much 13,000 employees, so very large. And my current place now, um, we're 600 employees. So, so okay. there's, you know, there's a difference there, but I still haven't seen that kind of real focus on the individual cost. So where I saw this the most was with startups that are like less than 10 employees, where bringing on a junior developer and training them is hard because when you're that small, it's like it's a good chunk of your company has to help with that. But at the same time, when you're a startup with, you know, a very small engineering team and a small budget, you can't necessarily afford the engineer who's like, my starting compensation packet has to be 250000 no less. And as a startup, you're like, we can't do that. Like, we can give you equity that might be worth something, but that's about it. And junior developers are usually a lot more willing to take that chance if they can learn a lot. Um, and I do think startups are a great place to learn a, a lot about the entire stack, uh, which is one of the things I really like about them. The downside is it doesn't necessarily look as good on a resume. Um, like a Google or something like that on a resume will get you in the door pretty much anywhere. But, you know, some startup that flopped is not really going to get you in many doors. So it's kind of a trade-off in that sense. But I, I've, I've always seen that startups, that that's where you can make those, you know, those cost analysis benefits and try to decide, um, basically just try to decide, is this going to be worth my time to get somebody a little bit cheaper that we can bring on board and get them up to speed and have them taking over things and very, very quickly growing? Um, but, you know, it, it really depends on what you're working on. I think team size is just a huge... Because like you said, whenever you're talking about headcount, you really have no motivation to to do that, which is unfortunate. You also bring a point up a point, both of you, about the type of company and where they're at, right? So is a junior developer better for a startup? I have been mentored that maybe the best place for them is in a larger place where they're maybe outside the critical path or they have more of the bandwidth for people, right? Um, and I'm, I'm not sure because I actually went into a <laughs> startup as a junior and so I have, you know, I've certainly had its trade-offs. Um, but I remember having a, an, a trusted advisor saying, you know what, in order to grow your career, you really need to do X so that you can have less stress because it can be a bit stressful, especially when the startup environment is one where you, 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 know, you don't know if you're going to survive past the runway. Um, so that's also a super interesting thing when you are a junior developer or you are a person hiring junior developers and being mindful where you're at and your capacity, both, um, you know, headcount wise or resource wise um, to take on a, a new developer. Oh, and I, I wanted to also say, like, before the show started, 
John said something super interesting, which was he was in a conversation with someone who considered themselves a junior developer, but only to find out that they had 10 years of PHP experience. So they were sort of using junior developer as, I don't know this tech stack, therefore I'm junior. And so I wanted to briefly maybe ask everybody's thoughts about what how they operationally define junior developer. <laughs> if you've been a developer for 10 years... If I'm putting something brand new in front of you, like a new language or a new, you know, server technology or something, whatever it is, I'm not considering you a junior. Like you're an experienced developer. You just happen to not have a ton of experience in this brand spanking new thing I'm putting in front of you. I mean, we, we should definitely not get those things confused at all. I mean, an experienced developer is an experienced developer, regardless of the technology, regardless of the, the stack you've been working in. I mean, we're talking about years of experience here, because at the end of the day, if you're going from language to language, for the most part, right, you know, you're going to have to learn some syntax and maybe some some brand new ways of thinking. But you're going to bring with you a whole heck of a lot of experience in terms of years spent, you know, learning how to, you know, how to, to work with a particular kind of technology. So the the Interesting thing here, which is like, uh, I think something like you also brought up, uh, Carmen, is, is that a lot of times um, when when folks are applying for jobs, <laughs> depending on, on, on your background, your ethnicity, your gender, right, you will find people who are applying for for jobs uh, um, or rather that are that are hesitant to apply for certain jobs because they don't check all the boxes. Right. And, and I think, Carmen, you, you, you came across a study um, and I think I, I came across it. I can't remember for the life of me. I can't remember what it is, but it showed that women in general uh, applied for a lot fewer jobs because they thought that they could they did not check all the boxes, like literally every single requirement of the job, which in this market where, you know, with, with the opener, uh, where every you know, that I mentioned in the opener, where every single job description that's coming out, it has a long list of, of requirements that is really, frankly, unrealistic at, at times. I mean, <laughs> you would have to be, I, I mean, I don't, I don't even know how to like explain this. I mean, if, if, if you are a, a, a woman and you see that long list, it's, it's, I mean, you don't even, you can't approach it. It's, it's unapproachable. I mean, it's, it's, how do you, how do you even reason, which is to me, what it's, what's kind of making this whole, it's like a, it's like a spiral, death spiral. Like it's like, you know, the, the job descriptions are getting ridiculous and you have folks that are not applying for these jobs because they don't see themselves meeting all of the qualifications. Like, how do we, how do we reconcile this? This is kind of madness. So when we talk about like seniority, in my mind, it's about like actual lived experience in terms of like working and things like that. Tech stack rarely matters, right? Once you learn patterns and learn to identify patterns, I think that's what as a hiring manager, I optimize for when hiring people rather than them being very good at a particular language or a particular tech stack. Like in my personal opinion, I don't care if you're like some kind of programming prodigy if you're just one year in kind of in development there's no way you're senior right because you just haven't seen enough things over time to build like these patterns and pattern recognition um for things um and that applies to like um sre and things like that too you just have to kind of time is what really builds kind of experience so i can't imagine a world where somebody has been an active developer for 10 years and still considers themselves junior because there has to be enough kind of experience in that 10 years where they've seen things and things have broken in very interesting ways for them to build that context and build that kind of experience going back to johnny's point i think one thing that bothers me 
like to, to hear that, that people aren't applying for jobs because they don't tick every box is that I don't think there's a single job I've got or I ticked every box. And still to this day, I don't know if I could apply to any job that I would tick every box because there's always going to be some random thing that I can't tick. And I, that's a little bit depressing, I guess, because that means there's probably great developers out there who just aren't applying for stuff because they're because somebody's setting up, you know, setting them up for failure with these requirements that are just unrealistic. I think one of the things I'm seeing as a trend in more of these job descriptions, um, GitLab was really good. Um, it was like for an infra engineer position. And they explicitly said, if you do not have all of these skills, apply anyway. Right. So they just had a, and that line did more than anything to help increase um, different personalities, people who maybe were suffering from imposter syndrome, regardless of gender or socioeconomic status or um, ethnicity. And I think that was great. Um, so that's one way that you can combat that. Right. Um, the other way is also to restructure like to what John said and to also what Stevenson said, which is. We care about you know, whether or not you want to learn how to, or you, you know how to go about the rigor of solving problems or maybe you're curious, right? Like there's just this idea of being able to or, or, or communicate, which bleeds into the next thing, I think, which is like these are all what are the things that make a junior dev succeed? What is that time? What happens during that time that makes a senior developer? Is it? 10x engineering coding skills, blah, or is it something that's a little more subtle? We're stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a hard question to answer because yeah. there's just so much to it. Because I think yeah. about like, you know, I went to work and I like, if I saw developers who I thought were great, like these are guys who were like on the top of their game, I felt like they were the strongest developers on the team. Rarely was it because I saw them pumping out a lot of code or was it because I saw them you know, it wasn't like any metrics like that. It was it was almost always they understood things, they could help others. Um, if you had a problem, they were the ones you could talk with and they could help you come up with a good solution. Uh, there were like a million small things like that that weren't, hey, I know how to code and go really well. It's, it's I understand the problem space we're in. I understand um, just programming in general and problem solving. And I'm, I'm good at helping other people sort of solve their problems and putting that all together. But like actually defining what that is or how you get there is just, so hard. It is. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. At my current organization, we have everything from SD one to SD six, but after SD three or SD four, I rarely see any technical difference between between those people. What I do see though is the behaviors, the collaboration, their ability to digest issues and, and give it back in a way that's understandable for the business, for junior developers, and everybody else. And I think that's when you start kind of really seeing the experience kind of there. You see that they've encountered some of these problem sets before, they've encountered them in, in ways that they could come back and like help identify those issues and even just help make sure that everybody else understands those, those issues. This episode is brought to you by X-Team. X-Team is the world's most energizing community for developers. In this segment, I talk with Ryan Chartrand, X-Team CEO, about living your life like a great adventure. Is your life an adventure? When is the last time you had an adventure? What if you could be part of a community that was all about living your life, working, coding, and still be adventuring at the same time? This is what Ryan has to say. We all want to go on adventures, but usually what that looks like is we have to save up a lot of money. We have to save up a lot of money. We have to save up our PTO. We have to, you know, and then eventually 
the adventure comes and it's very short-lived as opposed to well what if we could do this what if we had opportunities to do this and and be able to code and work and still be adventuring at the same time or at least have more opportunities to adventure you don't have to do it all the time necessarily and and that's really what companies like xteam are being able to offer today all sorts of remote companies are offering this now i think what xteam is doing differently on top of that is adding this extra community layer that energizes you in in fascinating ways because you're part of something that you truly feel like you belong in and you're a part of something that is inspired from 25 years worth of learning from you know communities like world of warcraft that have mastered how to bring people together and and keep them engaged and energized and so when you combine that that ability to be able to live your life like a great adventure combined with being a part of this incredibly energizing community you are truly getting to be a part of something special all right if you're ready to live your life like a great adventure give my friends at xteam a shout head to xteam.com once again xteam.com Some of the best developers slash engineers I've seen over the years, they have this, this ability to sort of multiply the productivity of an entire team without them often not even doing any of the coding. <laughs> it, it, it's amazing. Like they, they are a force multiplier, right? They can get other people like to be productive and you know, basically rowing in the right direction. Like sometimes you know, we call these people uh, principals, sometimes we call them leads, or whatever whatever title we want to put in front of them. And sometimes I've actually seen folks who don't have the title do that job as well. It, it's it's amazing. It's it's there's something beyond just the the hard the 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 hard. The, um, I'm sorry. How do I put this? Um, just the coding skill itself. Just be able to put code down. Uh, you know, um, type it out and, and and be able to sort of uh, ex- express what you're thinking in code. There's something that goes beyond that where you can sort of bring other people along with you that makes them productive too there's something about that that is actually worth its weight in gold i mean those are the people i think we we sort of need to maybe what we should try to do as as organizations as teams is to try and sort of a push push folks towards that model i'm not sure how i'm not sure if there's a formula that's that's such a hard sort of skill to try and develop you know i think like john's saying that there's there's like how do you how do you get there, right? Like experience, maybe um, I don't know. Like empathy, like is it is it part of the person? Like I know some people who are good at that, and even though they are very skilled, they're not so good at sort of bringing others along, kind of thing. So there's a there's certainly a mix of qualities and, and character traits in there. So, yeah, I'm I'm sure, but there's how do we how do we to me, that's that's valuable. To me, that's, you know, people, we jokingly talk about 10x, which, you know, we all know, you know, kind of a ri- ridiculous term, but, you know, how do we get somebody to 10x everybody else around them, right? Like, what is what does that skill look like? I think as organizations, we have to optimize for that sort of behavior. I see all too often some organizations will promote the purely technical people up to, to certain levels without having the the kind of human skills that are necessary to become that 10x engineer. And I think that's fundamentally the wrong approach if you're looking to grow your organization in a way where people can be valued contributors. Um, And that's back to the point that I made about not seeing a terribly big difference between SD3s and 4s versus SD6s. The big difference I do see is that ability to lead, that ability to take people with them. Um, And I think 
once if you're a hiring manager or even if you're a, a engineering manager that's looking to promote team members, you have to make sure that you're actively fostering that behavior as part of your your career development process, part of your promotion process. If you purely focus on a technical, you might have some really good standout engineers, but that doesn't create a, a kind of mindset where you're taking the whole team with you, you're taking the whole organization with you. So I think there needs to be a very good balance in career development frameworks and from an organizational perspective where they, they balance those human factors, the empathy, the, the ability to teach with the raw technical talent that may be present in engineers. And if we try to foster those two things together, then you end up with those high level engineers that are both empathetic and have the ability to teach and learn. And I feel like that's definitely a muscle we don't flex enough as technical places where we make sure we're giving even senior engineers the ability or the knowledge set to learn how to teach and learn how to help share the information that they already have. We purely focus on them building up their technical skills with projects and things like that. But what are we doing to help train them to learn how to teach or learn how to share information in a way that becomes that force multiplier? So it's not, it's not, this is a scale that is not incentivized in your view. It, I, I don't think it's incentivized in engineering organizations for the most part. I think we luck up and find those kind of people that cheer the, from the sheer um, kind of their own kind of altruism or whatever you want to call it. They, they get in that role and they want to teach. Um, but I don't think it's something that we often incentivize as organizations, nor do we even have like training groups built around engineering. If you look at it, if you've ever been in a large enterprise, you'll have like, HR will have like dedicated training and other groups will have dedicated training. But when it comes to engineers, they're like, well, just figure it out, do some documentation research and, you know, kind of figure it out. But we don't put these kind of training structures around these things where we're helping senior engineers become better teachers or we're helping kind of engineering as a whole find the language to properly teach things. So if you could like sort of just make whatever decisions you wanted, what sort of changes would you go about making to... One, just to get junior developers, you know, up to speed, but then also like to keep them growing into those people that can mentor others. Is it just larger training budgets? Is it uh, more pair programming sessions? Is it just more time for just letting them discuss and have one-on-ones with a senior engineer? Like, you know, what, because there's a lot of options out there. Like you see, um, like Bill Kennedy does training courses and um, there's online courses. There's there's like a, a lot of different ways that you can take a junior developer and potentially offer them training that we don't do now. So what would you, like, where where would your first steps be? Um, So part of my steps would be in building out the team, making sure that is incentivized to to learn that skill set. So um, my last organization had a very well-balanced career development framework where they highly focused on behaviors as well as kind of raw technical talent. And when I've looked at other career development frameworks at other organizations, sometimes I think they over- they, they kind of over-index on just pure technical talent when the behaviors are just as important. And I think that's also a thing that helps build proper um, culture in engineering teams. Like you may have like the, the brilliant a-hole on your team and things like that. And people kind of, kind of overvalue those people because they're, you know, cranking out tons of code side of code and cranking out features, but are you alienating newer members of that team from being able to learn? So I think optimizing for that sort of thing, making sure that you're you're striking that balance between behaviors and pure tech talent. But also I don't believe that like pure tutorial-based learning and just reading things will actually give you that experience that you need. I think experience is built, like I said, over time and in running into issues. So having 
projects that you can give to junior engineers and give them time to really cut their teeth on those projects. And if they run into issues or if they don't optimize it first, I think that's fine. But they're, they're, it's a muscle that needs to be exercised and they need to learn how to encounter issues, how to deal with those issues, how to overcome those issues and, how, and get that sweet kind of release of finally getting over that hill and, and solving an issue. And of course, Senior engineers could help, but I think it's something very much that you need to help them grow naturally into kind of getting into that mindset of continuously learning and figuring things out. So I think this came up the last time you were on the GoTime podcast, Stevenson. Um, I think you had mentioned like just the doing like roundtable or like pair programming sessions or mob programming sessions and that sort of thing, which I really liked because it's the idea of it's intimidating for somebody who's junior, but at the same time, it's a great way of you can throw them into something that might be over their head, that might be challenging, and they're still getting that experience you're saying they need to get, like they're solving a real problem, but they're not like, it's not like you're throwing them in the deep end and they don't know how to swim and you're just walking away. Like you're there, you're the lifeguard, you're you're helping out when they need it. Um, so there's a lot of help there. I, I guess you had mentioned that, that you guys did, I think mob, was yours the mob programming sessions? Yeah, Can you was. talk a little bit about those and like what the experience is like? Yeah, so um, so pair programming, mob programming to a certain extent, and also like solution roundtables are part of the same kind of dynamic where you're doing group learning or just group solutionizing in a way, right? So you start with pair programming where you have somebody that's more senior or it doesn't, I guess the seniority doesn't actually matter with pair programming because I've seen even senior engineers pair program. But if you're talking about junior engineers and bringing them up, you would pair a junior engineer with a more senior engineer and they would work together on an issue. And hopefully what the senior engineer is doing is talking through the solutions as they're working through things, talking through their mindset and their mental models around the issue that they're encountering and talking through how they're approaching it and things like that. Um, but mob programming takes it to another kind of extreme where it's it might be a whole team, it might be something, and where I find it mostly beneficial is when, as a team, you come across a new problem domain that you haven't encountered before. Uh, my team has always been teams of SREs and people that are that are dealing with like a lot of back-end issues, and if collectively you've come across an issue that you haven't seen before, getting junior engineers and the rest of the team all in the same session, kind of talking through how we're approaching this, what we're looking at, and why we're looking at this thing helps build like, shared context for the team so that in the future, everybody kind of benefited from that as opposed to just individual pairs of people benefiting from from some knowledge set that may be parts of the team. And oftentimes when you build teams, you find teams to be highly um, highly complementary, right? Not everybody has the same exact skill set. So when you approach an issue together as a team, people that are focused on a particular skill set can help the ones that are that are not as good in that same skill set. So you might even have senior engineers where one person's deeply kind of technical in one area where the other ones aren't. And building that shared context helps everybody on that team. On a more on a more pragmatic level, how how do we help because this is a go time podcast, mm-hmm. um, we sort of are talking about things in more general terms, but how do we help uh, engineers um, break into the Go ecosystem, junior engineers break into the Go e- ecosystem in ways maybe there's a, ser- a certain understanding or knowledge about how you would go and maybe search packages on GitLab or GitHub or whatever. Like, what are some of the things that are Go specific? I'm very bullish on this, but... <laughs> Be bullish. Go for it, I hate hate when people tell other developers not to use third-party packages or not to use, like, (laughs) Testify or something like that, strictly because 
most of the time when people wrote things like that, they did it because they were coming from like a Rails environment or something, and it helped them wrap their head around Go. And then they turn around later and tell everybody, don't use this. And it's like, clearly it helped you, and like you wrote it for a reason, or you know somebody wrote it for a reason, and it became popular for a reason. So it just, it irks me because I feel like we're expecting them to take everything we learned in two or three years of experience with Go, and we're like, oh, we'll just jump straight to the end. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. Like any any of those tools, if they help them gradually get there and wrap their head around things, let them use them. So I think as a, a community, we need to realize that sometimes doing things the wrong way or doing things not quite the go way is not necessarily a bad thing if it helps you get to that point. So I think that's, that is, in my experience, that is becoming less of a problem than it used to be. And yes, I, I do agree with you, John, that there was a time, and especially in the beginning, where um, the the folks that are I don't want to say go purists or 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 something like that, but there were folks that basically that adopted the language and and loved the language for very, some very specific reasons because of the, of the lack of a lot of these things, right? That they they were used to from other languages, from other communities that they basically were. It's almost like they were like getting a breath of breath of fresh air, like oh I don't have to deal with all these frameworks and all these things, right? So when new folks were coming in, they were kind of like okay, well yeah, don't don't bring that stuff in, don't cargo cult it, don't don't bring that stuff in from other, you know, just just keep you know like learn go for what go is, learn to love it for what it is, before you try to bring these things in, uh, and use the standard library as much as possible, and so on and so on. Um, while some of those statements are still, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still a believer in, in, in the standard library and using it for, for you know, a, a lot more than, you know, rather than reaching for, you know, third party packages right away. Um, you know, I think there's a time and place for everything, right? But absolutely, like basically taking an, uh, the stance that you shouldn't try to leverage any of these libraries, um, I think it's foolish because the Go community has grown quite a bit. And, and with that, um, there's a lot more uh, learning material out there right now. There's a lot more blog posts. There's a lot more videos, a lot more uh, tutorials and this and that. And, and with that, a lot, of, a lot of different opinions, right, that are coming in as to how you do go. And what works for one set of folks may not work for another set of folks, right? The, the, not every team follows the same uh, um, um, idioms. Um, there, there is such a thing as idiomatic go, but you know, right now, even you know, right now, I'm starting to see shifts in what that means for certain teams, right? Because you know, as, as the years go by and people learn you know, basically what's working for them, what's not, uh, um, you know the practices, the adopted practices of one team, uh, and, and and the things that are that show up out there. Um, you know, in the form of you know learning material and and, and you know um, podcasts, blog posts, whatever it is. You know, that's kind of reflect some of those uh, some of those ways of thinking. Um, the the what I do so to 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 sort of answer the um, the question of how do you get into Go? If you're like a brand new, you know, if you, if you're coming in into the Go community for the first time, you're like, okay, well, I'm brand new. Maybe I'm maybe I've coded before, maybe I haven't, but I'm brand new to Go, and you're wondering where to start. I'm gonna do a shameless plug and say, hey, like try to you know get into a GoBridge workshop, for example. Um, that'll that actually you know it's one of the best ways to learn is to actually teach. Right, uh, and I'm sure you know a lot of you have heard that that before. Um, that are going to be listening to this, uh, and all of us on the panel are very well aware of that. Right, one of the best ways to learn is to actually teach. A lot of times, you will know a little bit more than the person you're teaching. Right, and that's a good thing. You want to be right at, the, at that edge there because you're both learning, and you know a lot of times when when you're about to teach something. Um, it forces you yourself to sort of uh, sit down and try, try to understand it better, right? So that you can actually impart like actual valuable knowledge, right? So if you're wondering like, okay, 
how do I like, because like I said, there's, there's so much material out there right now that trying to understand it all before you know what's the right way, quote unquote, the right way to teach something, it's going to be, it's, it, it's, it's going to be a fool's errand, right? So, you know, uh, pick a topic, um, say, okay, I'm going to, at the next uh, workshop or at the next meetup, right? It doesn't even have to be a garbage workshop. At the next meetup, I'm going to pair with somebody. I'm going to help them understand this topic, right? And then, you know, you do, you, now you have a very, very uh, narrowly defined topic that you're going to research, find out, you know, the, whatever, whatever different, different views that you want to, you want to bring in and basically says, Hey, this is, this is what I've uh, understood this to be. Uh, um, some people do it that way. Some people that do it that, you know, the other way. And so you're, you're able to teach that very thing. And that gets you in, in the mindset of actually, uh, um, um, it makes you a better, um, um, program because you understand go a little better, makes you a better teacher, which ties back to what we were talking about before developing empathy for how you basically bring other people along with you on, on your learning journey, how you augment your team, right? These things are going to help, right? The build that skill set. So th- these are some, some, some very practical ways you can actually, uh, um, um, sort of a level up as a, as a beginner, as a newbie, um, as somebody who's brand new to, to go. These are some very practical ways you can actually uh, um, level up your skill. I guess a related question. Um, how do you help people that are getting overwhelmed with too much stuff? Um, specifically, just some examples off the top of my head. I've had people come to me and say, I want to learn Go. And then they rattle off this list of all these things they think they need to be using. And this is why I'm really bullish about frameworks and all that stuff. And I tell people to let them learn whatever specific things they want or using whatever tools they want. Because I'll often hear people say, I want to use like React. I want to write a Go API. I'm going to deploy with Docker and Kubernetes. And like, they'll rattle off all these things. And I'm just like, if you don't know any of those things, you're going to have one heck of a time. Because like, it's like a list that I'm like, this would take me at least a year to figure out all this stuff, I think. And I'm like, I've been coding for a while. I don't know how long it's going to take you. Um, So like, how do you help people... I guess in that sense of like picking the thing to learn, like, you know, picking out a small enough piece to, to actually grow, but also not get too far. Like you're saying, or Johnny, you said like, if you go to like a, a meetup, this is the one thing you're going to teach somebody, or this is the one thing you're going to learn. How do you pick that one thing? Is there a word for that, by the way? Like I've often found that thing, you try to learn one specific thing, but because the whole ecosystem around that thing requires some other knowledge, you end up having to pick up all these different things. Yak um, like, shaving. SREs <laughs> call it yak shaving. Yeah, I, yeah, yak shaving is, yeah, I definitely use that term in the SRE world, but I'm just wondering yeah. if, if there's a broader kind of term for that, because if you want to learn how to do just a simple, I don't know, web style project, not only are you learning how to do like RESTful responses if you're doing an API-driven thing, but then you have to learn some UI framework to present the information. And then you have to learn how to deploy it. It's like so many things that are just undifferentiated heavy lifting to your end goal, right? Your end goal is just to have, I don't know, some text return on a web page, but all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden you're knee deep in React, you're knee deep in what REST actually means and what methods you should be using. You're deploying these things, like you said, with Docker, and it's just <laughs> it's counter to your goal because your only goal was I just wanted some information back on my web page. You want you wanted to do a hello world on the web. Next thing you know, you're running a Kubernetes cluster, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember back in the day when you wanted to do hello world, you literally put hello world in some H1 brackets and you were done. But I can't imagine coming in now trying to do hello world via via some proper language and, and things like that. You can on the playground, right? Um, and this does not require any installation of Go or anything mm-hmm. having to worry about what your personal local environment is. I think that's really helpful. 
The other thing is using um, a code exercising site, <clears throat> Gopher Guides. <clears throat> but um, <laughs> we have a co-host here that runs Gopher Guides. But when I, especially for junior devs, you want to, like you said, Stevenson, you want to isolate the learning and you also want to scaffold it, right? You cannot move on to the next thing until you have this thing mastered. So it is like a syllabus and that is what educators like John and Bill and everyone, they, they have to, it's not just what you're learning, but it's a sequencing problem. It's an ordering problem. You have to make it cumulative along the way. And so for juniors, I always say start off with toy exercises. Even if you are coming from another language, you'll just pick it up quicker. But this teaches you the foundations of coding and also sort of the grammar and syntax and semantics of Go or any other language, right? And then it also shows you like the quirks right? Like strings and runes and things like that and go. And from there, then you build on to maybe I do better with applied learning. I want to do a little project. And so one of the things I like doing is a command line app. But again, that means that you have to install Go and you have to start. But that that is helpful because you're learning two things. You're learning how to use command line and the workflow, the dev workflow, Right. And you're also kind of learning how to, to, to wrangle that and go and testing and local everything. But, you know, just just a simple command line, you know, something that has like Jason and it's a lot. But um, <laughs> command line seems to be the next one. The third thing I've said, and I've said it before here, is a Slack bot. Because the feedback is very, um, sometimes even better because you can kind of understand Slack as a concept and a chat, chat bot. Um, and it just, it, but that also has another layer, which is you're now consuming an API and having to use that API. So, you know, it's like little things that you think are little and then you realize can be very overwhelming for dev. And that's just like coming from local host. Now, what if you want to productionize that app? Are you going to put it on a cloud? And then you got to learn a cloud API. And so, yeah, I think the first thing would be a coding exercise kind of um, either series um, and then follow along in your terminal or following along in the Go playground and then work from there. But yeah, that's, that's the name of the game is what I would call like scaffolding or sequencing the order of materials. That's you've you've literally laid, just laid out like how I teach these things like incrementally <laughs> like literally like I'm like let's let's start out and we're gonna go on the playground we're gonna do some hello world we're gonna see how the font package works we're gonna print some things out right right and then we go onto this command line now let's now build a command command line application that's gonna let you uh, have you learn how to mm. how to how to work with packages how to do these things right and then it's like well now let's 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 actually integrate it into something like like I don't know how to build you know pretty React interfaces like I I. I rely on Slack for that, right? So now let's <laughs> let's build a, 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 a bot. Let's build a slash command, and then, and then from there, I'm like, hey, you know what? We need to actually run this thing somewhere because Slack needs to actually talk to some backend server, right? Now let's deploy that, right? So literally, just that is that is the path I, I followed and inc- introduce things incrementally because yeah, like, like like you're saying, I mean, it is overwhelming to try and you know try and understand and learn anyone. You just need like pick up one thing that you actually want to do, right? That you can actually wrap these things around, these layers of complexity around, right? And and, and I think it's basically the, the command line graduating all the way up to actually deploying your own server thing is is a nice path that's going to, even though you're going to find some yaks along the way, right? You can still delay shaving them, right? Because you have like a, like a trajectory, right? You have somewhere that you're trying to get to. So I think when we circle back to some of the pair programming conversations and things like that, 
that is definitely on the do column, right? These are the kind of things you want to do to make sure that you're not overwhelming um, junior engineers when you're approaching a solution because all of this context that we have in our mind around how things should work and how things interact with each other, if you imagine yourself at the beginning of your career when you didn't have that context, try to be empathetic to that, right? Try to try to understand that you can't just use words like just because then you all of a sudden make the person feel really bad, like it should be the simple thing. But no, you have all this context build up in your mind and it is it is just to you, but to somebody else, it's the whole world, right? And there's this like famous meme, like just draw the owl and you start off with a circle and then the next Next step is draw the rest of the owl, and I hate that kind of that kind of thing. Whenever I'm encountering a new problem set, because I do feel less than when I'm reading those kind of things. So we have to be mindful of putting ourselves in that shoe and putting ourselves in those shoes of when we first started, and remembering that these things are years built up of context. I was just going to say we have someone in our Slack channel that says all of this is really good, but sometimes it's hard to find the motivation to continue with such material alone. Does anyone want to speak to that? Yeah, um, I, we're, when Johnny was talking about composition and building up scaffolding, I remembered how I loved kind of getting a sense of instant gratification when I was working on programming projects when I first started. I wanted to see something that looked as pretty as the stuff that I'm seeing online, right? I didn't just want to I didn't just want to have an unstyled thing on my HTML page. I wanted something that looked nice. And I think this is where JavaScript really excels. You have you have all these kind of platforms like Glitch and these other platforms where you can you can take maybe parts of a project, remix it in a way where you add your own flair to it, but you're getting that sense of continuous learning and that sense of instant gratification by by being able to take some of these things and going from there. Whereas if you're doing a CLI from scratch or you're doing this thing from scratch, you spend a tremendous amount of time just scaffolding what the CLI should be able to respond to. And there's no gratification there. It's just like the kind of trudge work that you have to do in order to get to the other side. Um, so I think we have to find projects that allow for people to come in, make modifications to, and get kind of what they want without them having to set up that full kind of level of scaffolding. And I remember that's why Rails kind of took off. You could Rails generate, and before you know it, you're just editing some ERB files and you're getting what you wanted from the from the whole thing and not having to worry about how does a web server run and how do I expose ports and all those things. This episode is brought to you by StrongDM. Manage and secure remote access to any database, any server, on-prem or in the cloud, and environments. They make it easy for DevOps teams to enforce the security and controls InfoSec teams require. So if your engineers need access, you need StrongDM. So what can StrongDM do for your team? First off, more control, less hassle. Grant or revoke access to any database or server in one command. Use your SSO to manage access to every database, every server and environment. Second, total visibility. StrongDM upgrades your audit logs, log every permission change, every query, every SSH, and every RDP command and know who issued those changes. And of course, faster SOC 2 compliance easily enforce access controls and instantly answer auditors' questions. Head to strongdm.com slash go time to learn more and request a free demo. Again, strongdm.com slash go time. So I'm going to throw something out that that perhaps might not be expected, that you can get an accountability partner. 
that means you you commit right to actually if if, if you're going through a tutorial uh, um, um, or you're going through some sort of a uh, online lesson or you're going through a blog post and you're trying things out whatever the case may be right maybe you're going through some formal material maybe you're going through a book whatever 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 learning style suits you best right if you don't have some sort of external accountability right somebody checking in and say hey you told me you were going to be done with this right you know two weeks from now um it's now two weeks are you done right if you really want to make it uh, challenging put a price pack on it right say hey if i don't do this within you know the month i will give you a hundred bucks trust me you will hustle <laughs> it's i so understand that question that that you you picked up from Sly carmen like i i struggle with this myself like i have so many things i'm i'm learning at the same time i have so many things i'm doing like literally i have to have tools in my browser uh, to to close tabs down if i don't read them after a certain time because like i have too many things open too many things i want to learn like and, and i'll start something and this is something i do maybe it's just me but i'll start reading an article Right. And I'll notice that, OK, hey, I remember seeing something else there and I'm halfway through it. I'll move on to something else. I'll start that one. Right? And then halfway through that one, I'll jump into another one. All of a sudden, I've got like, you know, 12 tabs open. You know, I haven't finished any one of them. Right. And, like, and I'm, I keep generating new ideas, new things to. Oh, yeah. Now I need to go find that documentation in the package. Or I'm like bouncing around like like some crazy person. And I'm like, OK, it's been so long. Like like I've been doing it so long. Like I know I know exactly right that I'm doing it wrong. But the human nature in me just keeps, you know, like <laughs> yanking me around like a puppet, right? So the way I'm I'm trying to do this now is about basically having, basically committing, right? Having some sort of external commitment, say, hey, I will get this thing done. I will I will write this, you know, th this post. I will do this video. I'll do whatever it is, and having some sort of external accountability to keep me going. Sounds like your brain needs a Stack Overflow error. <laughs> 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 but it's so funny because we, we're sort of talking about these things like accountability partner, maybe a study buddy, maybe a pair programming, maybe like a trainer slash mentor. And it looks it sounds just like losing weight. Right. Like, or, or getting in shape, if you will. And, it, you know, I think there's something to it there. Like having to master anything follows a little bit of desire and a little bit of engineering things so that you don't have to battle willpower, uh, some discipline involved. And so that's kind of another thing, right? So you have to try to really push through it and then also maybe use Gopher Slack if you're really, really stuck. And there's both the newbies channel, but sometimes you can just find yourself, it, it could be something that you work on and it's a project and you can ask and there's always helpful people. And it's how I, when I really got blocked, um, I remember I was stuck one night, it was like nine o'clock in New York time and a European, oh, he's, I won't say his name, but he it was like two o'clock in Europe and he just was like, I'm up, I'll help. And then I was like, he's like, well, I don't know, I'm going to need to like, see your screen do you want to you know pair and you could show me your screen while I do it. I was like it's two in the morning for you or three in the morning he was like it's fine but it helped me get over that block and that felt really good because I don't have a meetup community in my town like John doesn't so these are all things <laughs> that you can do and you can try as a junior dev or someone coming new into the language so that's also a good point right the frustration that you get when you're stuck on an issue and Almost all the avenues that you're used to are not real-time kind of help things. And I think using the newbies channel and 
and the Go Slack is really good. But like Stack Overflow, you'll paste the you'll post a question, and then you're like refreshing the page, hoping that somebody saw it and answered it. And it does it does get kind of demotivating. So I think that's a very good point about finding avenues that provide some real time feedback potentially. And the newbies channel has always been really really good um, for me. I I hang out there sometimes and just read kind of the questions, and I I even learn new things in that channel. So so I think that's a very good one. And I think the advent of Slack and some of those kind of um, more real-time systems really help get people kind of over that hump a little bit quicker because um, waiting back for a post and just never, I don't know if you remember back in the day, like experts at change, just never get a response or something um, is, is demotivating. Really? Like I can even, to, to like add to that, so like I, I have courses and I teach Go, but I've been very active in trying to encourage people to post all questions in Slack in a public channel, not because I don't want to help, but because I know that getting instant help is really, really important. And a lot of times when there's you know hundreds of other people there who have all done the same stuff, they can help. So not only do you get instant help, but somebody who's you know just learned the material can reaffirm that they've actually learned it and try to help you. So they're teaching and learning from that. And like it just ends up working all around on all these fronts. And it's challenging because sometimes you get a question where you're just like, I can just answer this right now. And you have to be like, Go back and ask this in a public area where, like, you know, you can contribute to everybody else and somebody else can read your question. And sometimes that is tricky. So going back, you guys are talking about, you know, picking out these projects and, like, getting that instant gratification and, like, keeping motivated, though. Is there anything we can do as, you know, as a hiring manager, as a team to make that more possible? Like, some ideas that came to my mind is you guys all mentioned Slack bots. I assume that if your team has Slack... You can almost take any new junior developer and be like, all right, your first task is to make a Slack bot that just adds your own personal flair to our team channel. Just something along those lines. So it's not anything overwhelming, but it's something to be like, we're all going to see the results of this. And it's, you know, it's, it's a useful way for you to get on board and it adds some of your flair to the team. Mine took it one further. We didn't have any bots set up when I worked for a startup and they just said, what if we wired the results of our build pass fail and put it in a bot and to put it into a builds channel, right? And so I started building up little bots for this and that. And it was really good because I just rinse and repeat and you really get better. And then they would just keep like... Um, I guess this idea of critical path, right? So like you don't want to be pushing or deploying something that's going to cause an outage as a junior. And I think as a senior developer, you want on a team that's trying to nurture junior developer, you want to give them developer experience and real world things and things that make them because people want to feel helpful, right? They want to feel like they're contributing and they're adding to why they're hired. But they also don't want like the life or death pressure of like, especially since, you know, like maybe your system isn't set up for a junior to deploy and roll back easily. Um, and I've certainly seen that. And, you know, they just feel awful when you put them in that. So, yeah, the idea of there's a critical path and junior developers should try to stay off of it for the first six to 12 months. And they should, there's always room, places where you can improve. And this isn't necessarily giving them stuff that isn't going to help them grow. I know that sometimes it would be like toily kind of manually stuff. No, anytime that you can try to automate things or improve things, improve communication, that would be great. 
So it's interesting because we have like internship programs at my current employer and something that we do is the actual opposite of what you kind of mentioned. We try to put them somewhere in a critical path so that they feel like their contributions are valued and that they feel empowered um, to do certain things. I'm not saying put them in the critical path to the point where they're getting pressure kind of kind of applied to them, but making sure like even for interns, right, a lot of people like to give them these side hobby projects that never actually go to production and never actually do anything, but we make sure that whatever they're working on is just like what everybody else would be working on so that they feel empowered, so that they know that their their contribution actually went somewhere. And I think that feeling of being empowered is a, is a huge thing that adds to the motivation like we were talking about earlier and makes people want to continue because they know that they're having some sort of impact. I think the critical difference then is to make sure that your release process is one that can be friendly to mistakes, right, for that I definitely yeah. agree with that. And if it's not friendly to mistakes, then even for non-juniors, then you have kind of process and procedure type of type of issues that should be looked at. And we always, in the SRE world, say if that somebody was able to take a system down by doing this certain set of behaviors, it shouldn't be that person that's being blamed. It should be like, what was it about our process that allowed for this kind of thing to, to take the right. whole thing down? And so we've all probably heard the story about like some junior developer deletes a database or something, and you're just like... <laughs> If they could do that, that shouldn't have been in their like that shouldn't have been what they were doing. Um, it's it's kind of like you have to choose. You know, you can be mission critical, but it's got to be something where like like Carmen said that the deploy process is works with it. It can't be something where like you know here's here's an SSH key, just go ahead and just SSH into the server, and that's the prod server. Do what you want. Like that does not make sense for a junior developer. When you said uh, um, we've all done. I could drop the database or something like that. I think we all sort of chuckled nervously. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we've we reached on something, something like that. I mean, I mean, it, it's it. You know, like like Stevenson saying is that whenever, whenever, some, if something like that is possible in your environment, that means you don't have enough guardrails in place. You don't have enough. Uh, um, it shouldn't be that easy to do these things, and perhaps right working with say if somebody has just joined um, your team. Um, um, and, and they're able to sort of uh, um, get to the point where they can actually take down your system um, and, and cause damage, right? You don't blame them, right? You, you thank them because this is they've uncovered a hole in your process. They've uncovered a hole in your onboarding. So, you know, you work with them to, 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 to maybe, you know, the members of the team have been, you know, have gotten used to the existing way of doing things for so long. And so they don't see the holes anymore, right? Because they always do it, you know, right or semi-right all, all the time. So they don't see the holes. So this, this ties back to the value to me, really, of a junior developer. In the mind of a junior, in the mind of, of a beginner, rather, um, there are many possibilities. They can a approach a problem for angles you've long since forgotten how to do, right? And there's lots of ways to actually tackle a problem in the mind of somebody who's not worn, right, on a, on a particular path. In the mind of the, of the senior, there's like very few ways to do things. Well, this is the right way. One, two, three, boom, done. Because this, this is the way I've been doing it for 10 years, right? I mean, it, so the more juniors you have on your team, and I'm not saying, you know, you know put, put all juniors on your team all the time. That's not what we're saying here. We're advocating for a mix, right? Um, but really, like, you're, you're, you want to have you want to have that diversity of opinion, right? The diversity of approaches, of, of of ways of solving problems, right? And that's something you're going to get when you have a good mix of, of of skill sets and a good mix of experience on your teams. I think like what you're saying about a mix is important too, because you you can't. It, it kind of depends on where your team is, and you have to choose the right time to bring on junior developers and the right mixture. Because 
if you bring on a bunch of junior developers and you don't have the senior developers to back them up and support them, you're going to have a lot of people sitting around doing nothing, feeling frustrated, you know, not really feeling useful. Um, so you have to kind of pick it as like, are we in crunch mode? Like, is everybody working crazy 60 hours a week right now to try to get some new feature out? Well, chances are you aren't going to have time for a junior developer as much then. But right after that release cycle, maybe that's a great time to bring on a junior developer and be like, okay, we're all you know taking a little bit of a break now, a breather, because we just did that crazy release. Um, it's a good time to get somebody up to speed and start helping them out. So I think just keeping that in mind and getting that right mixture of maybe your team of six senior engineers can support two or three junior developers and like that's what you found works. But I think that takes some experimentation to figure out where that balance lies. Indeed. Yeah, I think that's definitely a sign of like organizational maturity when you kind of know how to absorb new people and know how to how to get them trained up. And it's something that I think not enough organizations maybe place place a focus on. So um, I know one other thing we didn't really talk on is how do you, if you're, if you're a manager, you're running a team, you have to get things shipped on time. And we don't have a lot of time left, but quickly, I guess. Um, how, how do you guys, if you guys have been in the situation, balance this need to ship stuff versus this need to occasionally set tasks aside because they're more junior developer appropriate? If there's a task that's present and you have junior members on your team, then by all means, I think it could still be given to that junior member, even if you are in somewhat of a crunch time and things like that. I think organizationally, you have to add a little bit of buffer maybe to your delivery, delivery dates and things like that. But it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be that extreme to the point where it's going to impact um, the business. And if as a team, you feel like there's going to be business impact because you have to set this thing aside um, for the junior member, then, then that's, I guess, where you have to get a bit creative and, and get better understanding for how you can like, still make sure that this thing happens while getting that learning done. And that's where mob sessions and pairing and things like that come in handy. While the overall team velocity may be reduced a bit, that learning that comes out of it, if you, if you bring it back to your organization as a, as a benefit as a whole, then I think the, the organization has much more appetite for that style of thing because sure, those crunch time this time and this, you feel like this junior might have reduced our velocity, but imagine what increase we're getting in our velocity once this engineer has the context to help with our next crunch time or what have you. So we have to be making sure as engineering managers, we're, we're, we're fighting for our team. We're, we're kind of advocating for these kind of processes and making sure that nobody's seen as just kind of a hindrance to the organization in that way. The, I, I definitely second the, the using these opportunities, um, especially for the items that have been identified as at a sort of low lift in, in comparison to, 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 uh, the more advanced kind of tickets, if you will. Um, um, these, uh, the, the low hanging fruit uh, tickets are perfect opportunities for pairing, um, because they allow the, they, those things might be sort of, you know, small task for the experienced folks, but they'll be, they'll be the right size, right. For, for the, for the juniors or people that are new to the team. So those are pre- perfect pairing opportunities. And the thing I, 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 we didn't touch on explicitly on, on the pairing front is that when, when a junior and, and a senior, uh, um, um, pair together, it's important that the senior not touch the keyboard, so to speak. It's important to let the, the, the person who's in the, in the learning seat drive, right? They're the ones who need to move the files around. They're the ones who need to, you know, type every single thing. They're, they're the ones who need to reason through. And you're, you know, you as sort of the, you, you're more of an observer and saying, hey, 
yeah, this is this is some context that you might not be aware of that because I've been here a while and I know the code base that you might not be aware of. This is what, oh yeah, there's there's a package that does this. Oh yeah, there's you know, and but allow them to drive, allow them to 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 learn and, and they asking questions and you're just guiding, right? Not doing for them. Yeah. So another point to back that up is another kind of thing to put in the do or don't column in the pairing. Don't do the stack overflow thing where a junior might have a very specific question about how to do something, and then you come in and tell them to use this package or tell them to use this way or completely trash their whole solution in favor of some optimized approach because you learn this after years of experience, right? Meet them where they at, they're at, they at, right? And I, I say this SRE like all the time to meet people where they are, like help them from the, from the point that they are. And if you have education to impart on them afterwards, then do so as a kind of separate thing and help them refactor. But don't ever try to just completely kind of do away with somebody's mental model of something because you feel like you know a better way. I can give like a, a good example of this was whenever I was very, very junior. I was, I think I was an intern at the time, and I basically ended up writing my own CSV parsing. And we all know that's dangerous, but like it was, it was a relatively as one does. <laughs> <laughs> it was a relatively basic file that I was dealing with, so I, I didn't have a lot to to mess with. But somebody could have easily come along and been like, "What are you doing? This is like an idiotic thing to do." But the way it was presented to me was like they helped with the specific problem I had. They encouraged me and said that I was doing a great job. And then it was like, "But by the way, you might want to check out this library." that does all the CSV parsing for you because that's a really complicated subject. And you know, just doing it the right way can really go a long way into making people not feel like their time was wasted. You, know, you can encourage them and be like, you know, you're learning a lot doing this and it's a good thing, but you're eventually going to get to a point where what you're doing might not be the best approach. And even that doesn't feel like wasted time because think about what you learned about file I.O. and opening files mm -hmm. and things like that. That will apply to a future project where you may not have even understood that you were learning these things while doing something like CSV parsing. That's right. And I, I think that learning is important and patience if you are the person helping learn. It's like my, my child. It is so much easier for me to tie her shoe in like five seconds and excruciating sometimes to have her try to fumble and tie her shoe and it takes five minutes. And that is the very same thing that you have to let go of and be okay with with someone trying to get muscle memory, maybe working around a file editor like Vim, or you know, keyboard shortcuts, all these things. I mean, you just need to be patient because they'll pick it up and once they do, they'll be just as fast as you. But if you drive for them, if you tie their shoe for them, they're never gonna learn, so. That's right. I kind of wonder if parents end up being better at this guidance thing simply because every parent learns that there are a million things you could do faster for your child, but you have to let them learn. Because I think Johnny and I were talking the one time about chores, like there are a million chores where you're like, I could just do this faster, but like, that's not the point. Yep. And it's really frustrating sometimes, but it's like, you still have to do it. And I, I don't think teaching should be frustrating, but there are definitely going to be times where you're like, I could have this fixed in, in five minutes. But instead, it's like this bug is going to sit in production for three days until this junior developer handles it. Yes. But it's worth it. Yep, because you've increased your bus factor. Sometimes when I see a mm -hmm. 10x developer, I like look at a tire monitored mom who does all the chores and all the things and when they really should be delegating and distributing. And it takes longer, but in the end, you know that 10x developer is not going to get burnt out. 
But I think that gives us even more incentive to become teachers because when you think traditionally of teachers, they teach, but they get no benefit out of the people that they teach in the long term except for, I guess, a societal benefit. But when you think about an engineering organization, when you teach, there might be a direct benefit to you. It reduces your workload. It reduces yeah. your, it increases your budget factor, I guess, and things like that. So, so I think, I think that's more incentive to teach and teach properly because in the long run, it's going to help you as a, as an engineer. Indeed. So you you heard it here, folks. First, folks, you uh, um, become a teacher or you become a parent, and that'll make you a better a better mentor, <laughs> a better teacher uh, uh, for your team. Um, yeah. So I, I think. What do you think? What do you think? Uh, I can't speak today. Uh, what do you think, John Carmen Stevenson? You think we've 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 hammered this topic and and hopefully provided some value. Uh, to to listeners and and I think I've learned a few things as well on during during this call. What do y'all think? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, this is great. Definitely learned a lot. I uh, I wish we had solutions to the how to make job postings that were realistic. But <laughs> aside from like making it like a here's a list. If you can pick three of them, you're good. Or, you know, like at least like. But I don't know if we'll ever get people to change that. It's just always going to be ridiculous requirements. But the, the one thing to, for folks to take away, though, is that even if you see the ridiculous requirements, apply anyway. Yes, definitely. If that's the one thing people get from this episode, it's completely worth the entire listen. Mm-hmm. It's just apply. And I, apply I guess anyway. as an engineering manager, look at your current team and look at their skill set and see how realistic your job posting is compared to your team. Would your current team even be together if, they, if you had this kind of job posting? Well nope. said. Good point. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Johnny, you mean you have not been using Go for 20 years? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know anybody who's been who's been able to do that. Uh, not even the authors. Um, in any case, um, I think yeah, I think I think we did a good job here. Um, I think we could pat ourselves on the back, maybe. All right. Are we allowed to it's do that? Wrap? It's a wrap. Yeah, I think, I think we, we did it. So yeah, thank thank you for. Uh, for joining us, um, Stevenson, yet again for another episode. This was good. And uh, yeah, thank you, Carmen, for, for coming back and gracing us with your presence. Maybe in the future, we'll get to do an episode on the flip side, being the junior developer and ways to basically make yes. yourself more appealing to the companies that are hiring and all that stuff. All right, thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Go Time. If you're not yet, hang with us in Go for Slack. We have a channel called Go Time FM. Look it up, you'll find us. Hang with us during the live shows, connect with other members of the community, share stories, share code, share coffee recipes, whatever. It's a lot of fun. Also, we have discussions at changelaw.com on every episode. Head to changelaw.com slash go time, find this episode and discuss it with the community. Also, thanks to Fast, the our bandwidth partner, Rollbar for helping us move fast and fix things, and Linode for hosting the Change Law platform. Our music is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more awesome podcasts like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's one feed to rule them all, plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search for changelawmaster in your podcast client. You'll find us. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.